Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hi, how are you guys? Good. What's happening? Doing Not well. too much. We're uh, we're all in the same room <laughs> for the first time ever. It's a, it's a bit of a weird sensation, isn't it? Well, I think it's first time ever recording, but I, we did have lunch once. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. But but like recording this. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. Like you know, I, we need those like stress balls. If you say something that I disagree with, I'm just gonna like lob it <laughs> lob it across the table. No plexiglass <laughs> in between us. It's not a great uh, risk management practice. We should always have one person that's at offsite. Just yeah. in case. And there's no, there's no sides here. I mean, Jack and I are on one side of the table and Jason and Parth are on the other, but you know, we're, we're all one team here, right? Absolutely. No need for uh, succession planning with somebody outside the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, I mean, we have, we have quite a bit to discuss today. Obviously, you know, FTX still dominating the news, but we're going to focus a little bit more on some other really notable stories. I think there's been a lot of opportunity in the last couple of weeks, you know, with everything that we've seen around FTX, with everything else kind of fading into the background. But there's still a lot of other things happening in the ecosystem. We wanted to take this opportunity to shed a little bit more light on those things, kind of recognizing the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of speculation around FTX right now. But at a later date, um, you know, we'll maybe do a postmortem and discuss it in a little bit more detail. So. With that, um, you know, I, I think we want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, DTC's Project Lithium um, and the white paper that they just published around that. Um, and then, you know, talk a little bit more about the basics with uh, crypto adoption and just, you know, we, we've obviously seen some news around Brazil, certainly. Also, Stripe coming out with some interesting news. Um, and then if we have time at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about Uniswap and some of the activities um, that we've seen um, there. So um, before we jump in... My favorite, my favorite part, because it's always so enlightening. What, um, what did you try last week, Parth? All right, so this is something which I'm super hyped about. Okay. Right, so when you first uh, come into the crypto world, what's something which you don't understand? It's this whole MetaMask signing transactions and all of that, right? So if I'm interacting with any sort of contract, sometimes I feel like I'm signing my life away because <laughs> then you don't really know what's happening on the back end, what's happening under the hood. Mm-hmm. And so there's a startup called ByteCode, uh, and so what it does is... Byte, like B-Y-T-E? B-Y-T-E-K-O-D-E. Okay. And so what it really does is that if you just put in the contract address, or if you put any sort of transaction on it, it's going to convert that into plain English, which is great for UI, right? So if I'm not a Solidity engineer, I can just simply... And if I want to know what's happening in that contract, all I have to do is put in the contract address, and it's going to give me... Uh, a verbal uh, annotation of the content. This uh, is what it does. This is what it does using uh, an artificial intelligence parser. That's really neat. So, so non-coders like myself can actually know what happened after I hit the button. Absolutely. 
That's fantastic. <laughs> and, and How does it, what kind of language does it use to read to you? So you have to put in solidity. Like all you have to do is put in any sort of contract address for an Ethereum contract as of now. Uh, and they will support more uh, blockchains, but as of now, it's just for Ethereum. So what I tried doing was I put in Uniswap's uh, main contract address. So they have seven. I put in the first and you could see each function and what it really does, Okay, which is like mind blowing to me. So for transactions, you could put in a transaction ID and see like X number of this unit was sent from X address to Y address. Yep. So when you when you do a digital signature, it's going to tell you exactly what you signed or what contracts you interacted with. So maybe a question is, can you actually put this uh, information in prior to executing a transaction, almost as if it's a, a, a pre-execution control function? That would be a really smart idea. Absolutely. So a lot of times when you have rogue contracts, right, and you don't know if you want to interact with them, I think it would be smart to put it through some kind of AI parser so you know you, what you're getting into. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that crazy, though? Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. And it, it's speaking of like AI, I'm sure you guys have... Um, you, you must have tried Chad GBT, GPT. Did you guys try that? I, I didn't try it, but I was reading all these different uh, tweets about people who are interacting with it and people were putting through smart contract code or other things saying, hey, this technology is going to allow us to verify the, the, the code before actually executing anything. So it seems pretty crazy. It's, it's insane. So I tried using this and I'm just going to give this really silly example. But what I did was I put in a Python snippet and I asked AI to pretty much comment all the code but like in a 1940s gangster like vibe. So like, it was like, <laughs> right, and it's so, it's so, I'll show it to you after the podcast, but it's so accurate, it's really, really fun. That's really funny, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great use, great use of the technology part, yeah. <laughs> I was convinced that some of those that were getting posted, like people were making up, but it seemed, it's it seems super like legit, like let's do it after I this. Mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think some people were just trying to, to mess around with it and see if they could get some off the wall response. But I did see a lot of commentary as well about the fact that um, these AIs actually don't have their own um, context. So they're basically, using the training that they've had in order to generate the results based on the input. So some people are speculating over time, you know, will it get smarter and will it have the ability to actually set context? Um, who knows? But I, I think it's going to continue to draw a lot of attention. Uh, quite frankly, I'm surprised we don't see more about that in uh, like mainstream media, even just like those interest stories that pop up, mm, but yeah, it's still so sure. cutting edge. Yeah. I, I think it probably just hasn't gotten enough momentum yet. We probably will. Um, all right, so let's let's jump in. So, Jason, do you mind just giving a brief overview of the news that we saw out of DTC? Yeah, so um, DTCC came out with uh, results from a pilot they've been running, uh, informally known as Project Lithium. Uh, this is a counterpart to Project Ion, but essentially what it is is that the depository has done a digital dollar project collaboration focusing around uh, settlement for securities and piloting this type of activity. Now, for those who don't know what DTCC is, it is the U.S. Central Securities Depository, where all stocks and bonds are settling. Um, shares are held in street name. There are members that facilitate settlement for their participants. So retail brokerage accounts go through a broker. Institutions often go through a custodial bank and a broker. And in order to affect settlement, the depository manages a central counterparty, a clearinghouse. And that central counterparty helps match trades. They confirm the details of those trades, and then they'll affect what we call delivery versus payment. So this for that. 
security shares delivered in exchange for cash. And we talked a little while ago about DTC and their project ION, where they were creating uh, tokenized versions of U.S. equities that are held at the depository. This latest press release uh, around the security settlement pilot is really uh, sharing some results from what they called Project Lithium, or really the tokenized dollar that would facilitate the settlement of a tokenized equity. Now, it was really interesting to dive in because what they're talking about is exploring the opportunity for a robust, secure, and efficient settlement model. And what does that really mean? Well, it means that there's a lot of capital tied up to protect people between the time of trading and settlement. And if you can reduce that time in a secure fashion, then you can release some of that capital that's been tied up. But it also has to focus on, can it scale? And this particular pilot was not focused on scalability. They were focusing on logic. And I think it's important just to acknowledge that the Digital Dollar Project is uh, an industry effort. Uh, it's being led by Christian Carlo. Um, and they are focusing on public-private partnerships to identify uh, empirical data or information that could be utilized for the U.S. to inform a potential central bank digital currency. So this isn't saying this is a done deal. This yeah. isn't the Federal Reserve. This is about how can you settle security transactions in a way with using tokenized cash that might inform uh, future policy Pretty or regulatory things. At this point, totally theoretical. Yeah. But what I think is really great about it is, you know, they're exploring the use of. Um, the distributed ledger technology, where in this case, it actually is two different DLTs, one for the securities and one for the digital dollar representation. So how do you get that cross-chain interoperability? Uh, ultimately, they're, they're also trying to address some of the challenges around you know, what happens with exceptions. Today, we have these processes that are built in, uh, whether the trade may not match out of the gate or you've got a difference in timing. There are ways to repair these trades. There's a different sense of like finality when you think about DLT, right? That, that's right. And we think about settlement finality today about when the exchange has occurred, the settlement is not reversible, but there are times when things can be, uh, I'll call it modified. Uh, whereas in a distributed ledger technology space, you're typically not able to modify those transactions. So this particular pilot looked into things around, um, you know, how do you support network governance and how do you create a mechanism uh, for the network to administer and resolve any transactional issues that arise. So I thought it was really interesting. Certainly, I, I would look at it more as an opportunity to talk briefly about uh, what's happening in the world around uh, central bank digital currency research and, and evolution. I'm, I'm curious, have you guys been following any of the, the, the work, whether it's Atlanta Council or others that are they're publishing? So Jason, before we go to that, I, I think I have a question for you on DLT, right? So if I remember correctly, when I think about DLT, in 2016, Australian Stock Exchange came out with this project using DLT to do uh, settlement. So their aim was to do, uh, instead of doing T plus two settlement, they wanted to do settlement real time. And I think after six years uh, and also close to $250 million, I think they decided to pull the plug. Do you see uh, a future for, for DLT within institutions? It, it, that's a really good question. I think the future really depends upon the use cases and what uh, what opportunities may be generated as a result of utilizing the technology. I mean, if you were to ask the question, do you need a DLT to affect this business process? The answer is no, because we're already seeing it. But could uh, use of a DLT drive operational efficiency, maybe capital reductions? 
I think there's potential, but I think there also needs to be worked out because in the case of the, the ASX, they had gone down this path. They were replacing it clearinghouse, um, full stack. They, they refer to it as chess. I think ultimately each global uh, central securities depository differs in how their mechanics work. And I think over time, you're seeing this, I'll call it normalization of trade settlement cycles, but you're also still trying to work on interoperability. And when I do think about uh, how it might be achieved over time, if some central securities depositors choose to build on the same type of technology, then there may be a better opportunity for interoperability. But in the end, I think right now people are focusing on how do you scale and, and how do you actually achieve not just the reduced capital, but the improved transparency. And you also have to think about things. If you have a, a security and the security is settled in a particular state on a ledger, well, then how you do things like securities lending would change. So securities financing transactions, it becomes a lot more complex. So I, I, I think the work that we're seeing coming out of DTCC in the digital dollar project really is focused on informing future design, technology design, and policy discussions. But the market participants are the ones that will have to work through different procedures and different controls that could be enhanced or uh, maybe affected differently using these technologies. And, and to that point, I think the like I think you mentioned the use case really matters, right? So even if you take a step back from like, you know, securities tokenization and settlement, what we know about private permissioned ledgers is that it's really hard to get the network effect, right? To achieve critical mass. So I think you have to look at your use case and think, okay, am I looking to cast the net as widely as possible? And if the answer is yes, then like a you know, a, a public permissionless ledger like Ethereum would would be the right choice where if you're a consortium of of four banks or five banks that are looking to facilitate some some uh, process that it actually might be hard to get those five institutions to the table but it's easy it's certainly easier than if you're looking to you know have hundreds or thousands of participants um, in whatever the process is like in this case you know in the in the Australian stock exchange and in DTC's example like they maybe the the network effect isn't like a requirement right so Ryan, do you think there's mutual exclusivity between like successful private stablecoins, call it USDC, versus CBDCs? Like, could the two coexist? I think is the big question, right? Because what you're talking about, Jason, right now is CBDCs helping with things like trade settlement and capital efficiency for banks and intermediaries, versus like that's not what USDC is doing at the moment, right? And so, is there a world where you could have both? Uh, existing yeah. side by side, Th serving that, different purposes. That's that's a question that a lot of people are asking. My personal opinion is, I, I think today we have wholesale banking um, and we have retail banking. So I sort of extrapolate and think there may be a, a future where you do have some type of central bank digital currencies that are coexisting with other uh, digital fiat representations, uh, different stable coins across different uh, different currencies as well. So I do think that they're not mutually exclusive. Personally, uh, time will tell if that, if that holds true. But I, I do want to go back to something that Ryan just mentioned for a minute. You think about somebody like the DTCC. Well, it's a member-owned consortium. I believe it's 14 banks that are that are on the, the governance, but it's utilized with all, like with many, many, many dozens of brokers and custodians. So they already have the built-in ecosystem of participants. 
whether or not those participants want to utilize distributed ledger technology versus the existing infrastructure, I think will be determined over time. And perhaps there's some longer period where there's a transition or a depository might have to support multiple um, models, which may not be capital efficient. So I think those decisions, those considerations will play out over time. But again, here, I, I think the the important takeaway is that there are traditional financial services institutions that are trying to anticipate how the future may evolve and take steps today to help inform uh, both technology and, and policy uh, evolution. Yeah, and I think like there's a lot of trial and in some cases error, and it doesn't maybe you know achieve its desired end state. But I think it's encouraging. I mean, we continue to see new projects be announced or projects evolve into different projects. So I mean, I think this is like a net positive, right, for for tokenization, maybe DLT to a certain extent. Absolutely, and we're seeing more and more reports coming out talking about the projections for asset tokenization to be in the tens of trillions of dollars over the next decade. But I, I would sort of zoom back to, to what you're talking, Jack, in terms of stablecoin. We, we see that regulators around the globe are taking different perspectives. I think a few weeks ago, we talked about how in the EU, uh, under the, the markets and crypto assets regulation, there is uh, a sandbox. And that sandbox is going to allow for use of stablecoins for payments. And we're seeing um, other geographies talking about utilizing uh, st- uh, stablecoin for payments. We saw Singapore a few weeks ago. Singapore Monetary Authority gave uh, licenses to, I believe, both Circle and Paxos. But then we're also seeing that cryptocurrencies themselves are being... Um, the regulations around cryptocurrencies are being clarified in some other countries. And I think, Jack, you you and I were just talking, you looked into Brazil recently. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Maybe to start, when we talked about Brazil last week, uh, their chamber of deputies approved a bill on Tuesday to sort of put forward a number of regulatory clarity related items. I would pose a question. I just thought this was interesting. Uh what size, uh, on a country basis, on an absolute basis, in terms of adoption, do you think Brazil is? So India is number one. Where do you think Brazil Adoption of what? Is? Uh, adoption of crypto, sorry. Crypto, just I, all cryptos? Yeah. I, I would say it's in the top five because I know Argentina is like number two or three. Yeah, so it's according to, to this list, uh, it's number five. Uh, so India, US, <laughs> Russia, Nigeria, uh, and Brazil, which I, I found pretty shocking. So r- reportedly 5% of the population uh, is is using cryptocurrencies. Uh, that's 10 million users. They have around 200 million uh, people. The, the reason why I know is because a, a lot of these shit coins get mined in Brazil. <laughs> so really? so that's <laughs> why you have like a lot of cryptocurrency adoption. Wait, there. so so is it is it... Number of users or is number it, of is people, it dollar, not, not like per capita, fiat equivalent? Number of people. people per, okay, okay. Yeah, number okay. of users. Um, and, and so, yeah, Brazil has been in the news over the past few years for uh, being the first country with a, a Bitcoin ETF in Latin America. Um, they have a number of ETFs uh, registered beyond just Bitcoin uh, there as well. Number of competing crypto exchanges and providers. Uh, Nubank, which is a company that I believe Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's uh, company took a position in, and then the crypto industry tried to sort of spin it into Warren Buffett having a view on crypto. Of course, <laughs> I don't believe that's the case, but it was kind of a funny story at the time. Uh, they're the largest digital bank in Brazil, and they said after a month of offering crypto that they already had a, a million users uh, that were trading or, or interacting with cryptocurrencies after they had enabled it this year. Um, and so there was a bill put forward this month. Um, 
and some of the some of the items, uh, virtual service provider license is is something that they're introducing uh, for exchanges. Um, they outlined a number of like severe penalties around fraud and, and money laundering. Um, they outlined the agencies that are going to be responsible for oversight. There were a few things that ended up being left out of the bill, um, such as, and, and this is quite topical, segregation of user funds from exchanges, um, which I don't think actually has made it into this bill that was approved by the Chamber of Deputies. The president, uh, who is outgoing January 1st, has like another 15 days or so to sign the bill and, and put it into law. That, that's pretty interesting. I, I mean, when you, when you look at what's going on in Brazil, there's, there's a lot to unpack and you, you did a great job of that. What I found interesting in some of the articles I read around it was that there may be that more than one regulator that gets involved as, as crypto becomes more uh, widely adopted and utilized in Brazil. I saw uh, some people were speculating that the central bank might oversee yep. Bitcoin, but that some of the other cryptos might fall under the Brazilian equivalent Securities. of the Securities Exchange Commission. So, um, you know, I think it's just another example of how there's uh, a lot of room to clarify uh, regulatory responsibility. But I think it's a really good step towards crypto adoption, right? And, uh, and speaking of crypto adoption, um, I don't know if you guys saw, but Stripe just came out with this new widget where you could have direct on-ramps on any decentralized application. So if, I, if I'm a user of a decentralized application, and typically what usually happens is you first have to open up an account on a centralized exchange like Coinbase or Binance, and then you have to send those funds to MetaMask or some other self-custodial wallet, and then you can use a decentralized application. But now using Stripe, you can simply go on, on any decentralized applications website, pay in USD, and then get money in whatever crypto you like. Yeah, I thought this was a huge announcement that sort of went under the radar because one of the biggest... Uh, d discussion points amongst people using DeFi is you can't really take fiat dollars. You need like the on-ramp of the exchange and that's always going to make DeFi reliant on CeFi. But here, and it's still, Stripe is still, I would categorize as CeFi, but it's it's creating this sort of directional one-way on-ramp where, uh, just using an example, if Uniswap wanted to, they could integrate with Stripe and then you could take your dollars and get USDC you know, directly into a wallet on, on yeah. Uniswap. I think it's a really positive news. The only caveat is that um, Stripe will handle all uh, your KYC and, and Stripe would obviously know your identity. So you don't cut out the KYC part, but you you still had the KYC at the beginning anyways if you went to an exchange for the most part. And, and, and I think like at the end of the day, you will have a camp that chooses the usability over the privacy and the security and a camp. Probably the majority, right? When we think about a wide scale adoption, I think, yeah. And the beauty of the technology is there's always an avenue that enables you to maintain your privacy. So I, I, you know, I agree with you. I think it's, 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 it's a net positive. I think, you know, there's obviously when we think about like adoption more broadly, there's a lot of, you know, we've always said usability is still really awful and we've come, we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. And so things like this are going to be important to get more people onboarded to the technology. And it kind of blurs the lines a little bit. I know we've talked like a lot about like CBDCs versus cryptos. And I think we maybe glossed over that part, like in the, uh, with the Brazil story, like we're talking really about, you know, in that case, crypto versus like more centralized stable coins or CBDCs, which are in a slightly different camp. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to the extent that we can blur the lines between where people are today in TradFi and crypto, like I think that's going to be really important in the evolution of the technology. But, and to your point, all of those stories, like tokenizing dollars and CBDCs, Stripe creating fiat on ramps and Brazil crypto regulation from traditional regulators. It's all the, the merging of TradFi and DeFi and crypto. What, what I like about this story is it makes me sort of fast forward and say, okay, if I have an on-ramp now or I have multiple on-ramps, what I think about is transaction, right? So if I want to go into a vendor and this vendor point of sale um, technology exists that I can choose to pay in one currency, they can use, choose to receive in the other, just like I'm at an airport in a foreign currency and they're asking me if I want to pay in their local or my base. I think that becomes a very interesting continued evolution. In that context, I'm sure there's a, a an intermediary who is going to be processing those exchanges and who may uh, be able to do so with uh, a handsome revenue. But I think in the end, the points that you guys were talking about around utilization and ease of use, uh, convenience are going to draw people in and they're going to want to spend what they have. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good, that's a good segue into the next topic, um, which was the announcement that we saw from Uniswap. Do you mind just providing a, a brief overview of, of that story? Yeah, Absolutely. So, so within the DeFi uh, ecosystem, this has been a really big news. So Uniswap just launched an NFT aggregator. So what that means is, if you wish to buy any sort of NFT from these eight exchanges or eight NFT marketplaces, like Pseudoswap, uh, OpenSea, X2Y2, LooksRare, you could find all of those on Uniswap. So if you go right now on app.uniswap.com, and if you click on NFT, you would pretty much, you have an option to buy NFTs across these uh, well, marketplaces. What's also interesting to me is that if you click on NFTs, the UI of Uniswap is so identical to what OpenSea has, which is kind of really interesting. Usability, muscle memory, like you know, trying to replicate what people are familiar with already. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. And so Jason was making this point before the podcast about how when things are open source, uh, pretty much, Anyone can copy anything, and that's sort of the power of it. Uh, so that's one part of it. But from the initial reports, uh, I think we are seeing a lot of people who are buying NFTs, they are getting a 15% discount on these NFTs just because that's the job of an aggregator to get you the best uh, price. Uh, so that's really, that's a big news. How does it compare to existing aggregators like you know, Gem or I think there's a few of them, yep. right? So there are two aggregators, Gem and Genie. Gem was acquired by OpenSea. And Genie was acquired by Uniswap, uh, Uniswap, and that's basically it. So, so they are pretty much using Genie on the back end. Makes sense. Where is the actual like execution, if you will, happening? Is that on Uniswap? On Uniswap. Yep. So the only only difference between using OpenSea or Uniswap is that if I'm an artist, I cannot enlist new collections on Uniswap. So I still have to go through OpenSea or. Uh, through, through like the venue. Yes. Okay. Do we have data on OpenSea market share? So this just came out two days ago. So I think I'll we'll we'll wait for the next report. But just to give you some, and that's it's a really interesting point that you 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 came up with because if you remember, Coinbase also launched an NFT platform mm. a few few weeks ago, and uh, I think it was doing like average daily volume of just like forty thousand dollars, like forty five yeah. ETH, which is like. 2,000 times less than OpenSea. Like well, it's, we've it's talked, I mean, we've talked about this before. OpenSea has first mover. Mm -hmm. They have a tremendous amount of yeah. volume. They've and been I mean, around for five years. Yeah. So, But it was almost an unhealthy market, right? Because there was basically one player. Well, there's not a lot of efficiency when you have it all centralized in one place.
Yeah. And I, I do have to say that it's it's sort of interesting seeing this within the NFT community that even though we are in a hardcore bear market, but you still see new collections coming out. You see you still see a lot of activity. It's almost like you still see board apes being sold for millions. It's almost like the NFT community is kind of insulated from DeFi and CDFi and all of these places. Uh, but then again, uh, I think time will tell if if Uniswap's aggregator does well, because uh, uh, we obviously saw Coinbase's NFT platform, and it's not it's not comparable to where OpenSea is at. Yeah, I guess the power of the aggregator is the more execution venues or marketplaces that you have in the aggregator, the better. Mm-hmm. And I would Im- I would imagine based on that lineup that you ha- they have the majority market coverage. Yeah, absolutely. Just with the inclusion of OpenSea. I mean, I, I keep thinking about this and my mind wants to apply the efficient market hypothesis to NFTs, well, but I don't think So that's I what can. I was kind of getting <laughs> at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a good point. <laughs> I mean, call me old school. I'll, I'll accept that. But when I think about where is where are people going, I think they're going to go to where there's liquidity. And where there's liquidity, there's typically volumes. And I think that's the question where, Jack, you talked about the advantage that the, you know, the OpenSea being an earlier um, market mover had tremendous volume, maybe that they still have volume, but they're losing some volume relative to others because they're a new entrance in the market. I just wonder in the end, uh, will there be um, some closing of the gap on the discount pricing that you mentioned? Yeah, I think so. Um, and uh, I've been speaking of Uniswap. I don't know if you guys saw that pancake swap uh, flipped Uniswap in terms of TBL. Did you guys see that? No. So pancake swap is a decentralized exchange, which is an exact copy of Uniswap. Uh, but it's on Binance Smart Chain. So right now what I'm seeing is that a lot of these engineers, a lot of these developers who used to work on Solana or Avalanche, uh, now they are migrating towards Binance Smart Chain because of obvious reasons. And so now you're seeing more activity and that's why PancakeSwap uh, V2 flipped Uniswap's V2, which is mind boggling. So, so partly you're talking about the total value locked in DeFi. So that could be that they're... Um, Utilizing that platform for facilitating lending and borrowing activities, arbitrage trading, yep. so um, staking. Right? So all these different categories of DeFi can be, um, I'll say, operated using that Binance Smart Chain. Yeah, and it's also interesting because uh, so right now, uh, so within Uniswap, you have three versions, right? So you must have heard about Uniswap V2 and then V3. V3 is kind of the biggest one, which is where you have most of the liquidity. And so PancakeSwap is a fork of Uniswap V2. And so this was super interesting. This is a really crazy story, but Uniswap V3 actually put a business license on their code, mm-hmm. which means that you cannot fork it for until like April next year. And so once that happens, once that expires, you will see all of these like yeah. decentralized exchanges like, like uh, forking Uniswap in like seconds, right? Yeah. Which is going to be really interesting. All right. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. This was a great discussion. It was great seeing you guys in person for first recording in person. So thanks everyone for joining and uh, we will uh, we'll talk to you uh, next week. Have a good rest of your day. See you. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT.
FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.